Hi, everyone. I just wanted to record a quick intro before we jump into the show. So in this show, we're talking about the German elections, which are set to happen on Sunday, September 26th. This will be the first election without Angela Merkel, who is stepping down as chancellor. It's shaping up to be an election that will feature historic shifts in power amongst the German political parties, which has widespread importance uh, throughout the world, given the position of Germany as the imperialist pole in Europe. So we're joined by Michael Burkhart, who is a writer based in Berlin, and Elena Lang, who once again is a senior researcher and lecturer of Japanese studies at the University of Zurich and author of the recently published book, Value Without Fetish. Be sure to check out Elena's book and follow Michael on Twitter. All the information is in the show notes. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome along to a special edition of Red Star Radio. Today, we're going to be focusing on uh, a political scene out of the Anglo-American-Canadian sphere to the shock and horror of our English-speaking listeners. Uh, We're actually focusing on the uh, state of play in German politics today. And for this, we're joined by two guests. Uh, returning to the show again, it's, first of all, Elena Lang is with us, and she's joined today by uh, Michael Burkhardt, who's uh, over in Germany. Uh, hello to both of you. Hi, it's good Hi to there. be back. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get started on the discussion around the state of play with regard to the upcoming federal elections in Germany, though, Elena, you're actually uh, a published uh, author today. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, your book, um, uh, Value Without Fetish, uh, has come right. out uh, today. So, uh, do you want to say a little bit about that and uh, what what's the project you're undertaking with the book <laughs> and um, what you what what you hope to um, show to people through the critique you're making? Oh, thanks so much, uh, Alex, for the opportunity. I don't want to really go into into uh, talking about the book so much. Just that today, uh, June 3rd, this is out. Uh, you can also get uh, open access, so it's free for everyone to read. It's, it's a pretty thick book. It says almost 600 pages. And what I do is I, I look at the most prominent Japanese Marxist economist, Uno Koso, and yeah, I do uh, a value theoretical um, interrogation to his work. And um, yeah, it's out today and I, I, I can only recommend it. But everybody just check it out and, and yeah, I think you'll find some interesting stuff there. Okay, so be sure, be sure to check that out and um, we'll uh, be uh, tweeting it out from the, uh, the podcast account later if you, uh, if you follow us on there. So take a look at that. But uh, shall we then dive into our uh, rather complex subject today? Uh, Leila, do you want to start with the the first question? Yeah, so we are going to be embedding our discussion in the upcoming German elections. Um, And so the first question is, so the American and Canadian left have, have not seemingly been paying too much attention, but the British left has been treating the rise of the German Greens in the polls as if it were some kind of radical breakthrough. Um, so what is in your minds, the actual reality of the class forces represented by the German greens? And, um, can you talk about their record as part of a coalition run by, uh, Schwerter, who is a leader of the SPD in Germany? Yeah, he was uh, the leader of the SPD in Germany until 2005. Well, first of all, um, 
I'm going to say that the rise of the Greens is indeed a radical breakthrough, but uh, it's a it's a radical breakthrough of uh, neoliberal authoritarianism, uh, and it's a breakthrough of the victory um, of the Greens, which presents a total defeat of working class politics. And I and I want to go into this topic, but before I go into this topic, I'd like to argue, and uh, the following is. Um, uh, that the Greens' rise to power follows a very particular script. And for that, uh, to explain a little bit more about how the Greens uh, got to power in Germany, um, I want to I go a little bit into the history. So my thesis, would, I would put forward a, a thesis, and that would be that every time that the Greens saw a power vacuum, which they could fill, they pulled out a moral blackmail card. And that is to say, if you're against us, you're proto-fascist, you're pro-fascist even, or pro-national mm -hmm. socialist. And I call this the fascism blackmail. I will go back to come back to this topic, but let me just um, sketch out uh, the history of the German Green Party before I come back to that and you understand. So for one facet of the history of the Green Party in Germany is the so-called long march through the institutions. Because if if Annalena Baerbock, uh, she is the current Green Party chancellor candidate, if she wins, well, she seems to lose her lead right now to Armin Laschet from the Christian Democrats. But if she wins, then the so-called long march through the institutions proposed by the Greens would be complete. And that would be a historical victory. So now what is this long march to the institutions? Originally, it's a slogan from the German student movement of the 1960s, and it, it originally meant um, a takeover of state institutions in order to disintegrate them from within. A takeover which would be organized by workers and progressives and part of the radicalized student left. It was then prominently theorized by Rudi Dutschke. Mm -hmm. He was a forerunner of the new left. and He died following an assassination attempt in 1979. He was, that assassination attempt was already in 1968. He was really a prominent, uh, yeah, well, the leader of the student movement, I would say, in Germany in the 60s. Okay. But, but in the Greens, even though they were spawned by the new left and the ideologies of environmentalism and feminism, this meant something completely different, this long march to the institutions, especially with the ascent of Joseph Fischer, or as some people like to call him, I don't call him like that, Joschka Fischer, in the 1980s, who became the first Green Regional Minister in 1985, and then he became um, the Secretary of State in 1999. The um, the long march through the institutions um, had different meaning in the Greens. Um, it meant uh, being fit to govern. It was expressing a certain will to power that mm. already began in the mid-80s, and especially with the persona of, of Joseph Fischer. So this method of continuous adjustment to institutional power, and then to the market economy, to NATO militarism, and also, I think, ultimately being cold warriors on the side of the capitalist West. This led to the Greens' role in proffering a politics for the establishment, for the educated middle class, and in direct rejection of workers' interests. And this, all of that, was the victory of a certain fraction within the Greens, the so-called realists or realos, over the fundamentalists, the so-called fundis. So notably in 1993, 
um, radical ecologist and the figurehead of the fundamentalists, so the more more left uh, fraction of the Greens, Jutta Ditford, she quit the party along with a lot of other um, party members, Green Party members. And she very perceptively said that the Greens were the authoritarian, dogmatic, and hierarchical party of the establishment. So I quoted her just. But to come back to your question about um, the significance of the Green Party today, let me say a few words on Germany, the state, and this current historical crisis. And then you, and then I come back to the to the original thesis. Mm-hmm. I would say that Germany right now is in its worst state in political terms since the end of the Second World War. Why? Well, obviously because of the political handling of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, which is an open war against the working class, whose economic and political effects, I think, will be devastating to a degree that may not be entirely clear to anybody today. And alongside this terrible state of German politics right now, we have a level of authoritarianism and paternalism, and outright, I would say, brainwashing of the populace, which is also unprecedented since 1945, maybe with one exception to which I will return. Mm-hmm. So right now, um, facing the COVID measures, the argument is this. Mm-hmm. If you're against the measures, then you're a fascist. You're a friend of the most regressive forces in society. You're a conspiracy theorist, etc. And that's the only horizon of political discourse right now. This, this is what I call fascism blackmail. So, but who is the driver of this discourse, right? Who is the agent behind this super narrow view of the world, of society? And I think it's pretty clear that the main driver of this discourse is the Green Party. The Green Party is the lockdown party. So there is nothing, there's no debate in German politics right now. So even, even you know, the, the lockdown measures have been designed also by, by the Social Democrats, by um, the Christian Democrats, of course, and the Social Democrats. And they're thinking about easing lockdowns. And it will always be a Green Party member who rejects it. Okay? Mm-hmm. So... The point, however, is that this argument and tactics of scaring the public and, and uh, you know, making up this, this fascism blackmail uh, and, and filtering politics through this very narrow lens goes further back and is directly tied to the involvement of the Greens as an establishment party. So in their history, a striking example, example for this moral fascism blackmail is, of course, the support for the German military operations in former Yugoslavia in 1999 and in Iraq in 2002. So I want to say, because it's so complex, I want to say very quickly, as quickly as I could, two things about um, how the Greens launched the war. The first war of aggression um, from German soil after 1945. So this so-called Kosovo War in 1999, which lasted two months with daily bombings in Serbia, was the first German active military operation after 1945. And it was Mm -hmm. brought about by the Green Secretary of State Fischer, by a Green politician who was in coalition with the Social Dems, the the Chancellor Chancellor Gerhard Schröder. So actual German bombers from the Luftwaffe, they launched strikes against also, of course, Belgrade, but smaller towns in Serbia like Kragujevac, where, ironically, the German Wehrmacht committed a massacre on over 4,000 Serbian civilians, among them hundreds of school children in 1941. Okay, that's one chilling uh, episode. 
But how could a former peace party like the Greens make the first military strike by the German Luftwaffe after 1945 even happened? How could this yeah, repetition of history be accepted among the German populace? So I think it was it was because it was the Greens who who managed uh, the um, these operations, who legitimized these operations with, and that was a huge cultural shift with the Holocaust, because um, for them Milosevic was the new Hitler. These military strikes were not only justified; they were obligatory, and this was the argument of the ruling class in these days. And with this moral blackmail. The cultural elite followed suit. So prominent intellectuals like Jürgen Habermas or writers like Günter Grass yeah. that vehemently supported the war with the crudest, you know, topsy-turvy arguments about preventing another Holocaust. And the prominent green politician uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, who was uh, the German student movement's darling, they called him the Red Danny. He even wanted to send uh, ground troops to Yugoslavia. Also. Um, the push for the military intervention in Iraq in 2002 also came from the Greens. So Schroeder at the beginning was was hesitant to go with the Americans and to war, uh, to war in Iraq as allies. And interestingly, it was the same prevention of fascism argument, the same allegedly anti anti-fascist logic that justified the participation of Germany, according to Fischer, because Germany's Unilateralism, this so-called Deutscher Sonderweg or Deutscher Alleingang, could lead to suspicions of green nationalization. You know, this was the argument by the Greens. If we don't go along with the Americans and launch military strikes, you know, with our allies in Iraq, then everybody will suspect us of the German Sonderweg, of the German unilateralism. So the ideological line of all three scenarios is it's what the three scenarios share is the alleged prevention of fascism or national socialism. And this occurred in precisely in those moments when the Greens made a big grab for political power. So it's, it's the same script used over and over. If you're against the bombings, you're with Hitler Milosevic. If you're against helping US, uh, your U.S. allies in Iraq, you want the Nazi German unilateralism. If you're against the lockdowns, you're fascist conspiracy theorists. It's this script. That works so well. So what I see in the history of the politics of the Greens is uh, opportunism, state authoritarianism, and the will to power on really insane levels, which is in crucial moments always justified with fascism blackmail. So that would just be my my two cents about the history of the Greens. It's it's a facet. It's maybe just just one aspect, but this is how. Um, how the march to the institutions um, works for them and could work for them and turn out with a Green Party chancellor in, in, in September. Yeah, I thought that I read an article about the history of the rise of the Greens, and it's really startling to see where they've ended up compared to where they started as this like decentralized, like radical, like participatory, democratic type organization. Um uh, the shift has been really start startling, and um, I mean, so what what you're saying that here is basically painting a picture wherein the Greens has kind of they've kind of um, taken up uh, the role of legitimizing like German imperialism, um, 
that was currently was previously held by some of the more major parties in Germany. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, like it's what it sounds like to me. And they've also taken up the role of, you know, legitimizing like otherwise uh, capital friendly approaches that, you know, it seems like based on their history of participatory democracy and decentralization and radical um, ecology, they would have been against, like, for instance, the widespread annulment of civil rights and liberties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it goes hand in hand. And and I think that maybe maybe Michael can also say something uh, to that. I I just want to say um, this, uh, the foreign politics aspect of the Greens, because the Green, there was a Green foreign minister, uh, foreign secretary, of state uh, was really um, yeah that was the hallmark of the politics and now that's that's been you know a couple of years ago but I see their main area of engagement and commitment in this in this for, in the foreign policy department so um, I think this is where where they will be most active what do you think Michael um, yeah I think. Um... The the article in the New Left Review put it well. Um, the Greens are basically the American embassy in in uh, Germany, in definitely in regard to their current policy. Um, but um, just in terms of domestic policies, I think it's very important, very crucial to really point out that it's a radical breakthrough. And so far as uh, the Greens are the party of the elites, if you look at their constituency. They're really, really uh, well paid. Uh, they belong to the highest income brackets. Um, that that's the party of the management elite. There was this um, this poll among um, managers in public and private bureaucracies, and uh, most of them, uh, I think, twenty six percent said they would favor a green chancellor. Mm-hmm. So. Um, they're they're definitely a radical breakthrough and so far as uh, the middle class just <laughs> just uh, really ki- came to terms with its own power mm. what do you think um i mean it's not like the middle classes have historically been like, what do you think is, is most appealing to the middle classes of the Greens? Like, do you think that it's more so the memory of them being like this environmentally focused group um, and one that was a, a big part of the peace movement and anti-war movement is what is really appealing to the middle classes here? Or do you think that the middle classes itself has changed its priorities in a way that maybe it's not conscious of? Like, what do you think is the most appealing thing about them? Now the funny thing is, I think they still managed to have this this aura of of rebellion about them, and and I really wonder why that is. I try to to figure it out. I mean, if you just like just like Michael said before, I mean they're the party of the elites, and it would be completely ironic to call them an anti-war party because yeah, at this <laughs> they point, were the, yeah. the former supporters of war and also the cons- constituency in comparison, even with the Christian Democrats. Uh, had the highest rate of support for for war and the Greens. So what is really important, especially the last po- couple of years, is is the climate uh, climate movement uh, because the, the Greens have tried to attach themselves to this climate movement, and before that uh, with the Energiewende in Germany. 
so this um, this energy turnaround going away from 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 nuclear and uh, and yeah. coal. So that is something they that maybe enhances their aura. But if you look at their party program, it's, it's all pretty different. Even even this this Ausstieg, atom Ausstieg um, uh, exit from from nuclear energy. Uh, is, is quite contra- counterfactual to what they said in their party program, even in the beginning of the 2000s, because there they totally embraced nuclear power. Mm. So you wonder, I mean, everybody, it's, it's not like this is a big secret. You can read the party program. And, yeah. No, but because people, I think people are still somehow, um, they're disillusioned mm. with, uh, with, current establishment politics but um, I think I want to talk about this later why there is no anti-politics moment in Germany yeah uh, why there are no populist movements in Germany I think they uh, maybe the greens are something like a stand-in for populism which they are not you know they are they are the most establishment party that you can imagine you know even in comparison so it's it's strange really how this aura seems still seems to perpetuate itself you know contrary to the evidence yeah, I think it is important to also keep in mind that, um, and this may sound a bit evil, but um, the Greens are really the party of ideology. They're the party of delusion. There's, yeah, yeah. A real, there's a real sense of crisis, and not only in regard to uh, climate change, but also um, in regard to um, the worrying state of the EU, and um, the Greens, with their yeah upper middle class uh, esprit, they they um, they're the party of uh, moral delusions. They lend moral um, moral feasibility to 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 this uh, brutal stage of uh, German imperialism that is the EU. They. Um, they are the party that says uh, we have better management, but uh, that still sticks to uh, the status quo, which is uh, the material interest of their voting base. I mean, I guess like that is a good way to maybe take us to the question about, okay, so to understand like why we are in this political moment in Germany, it's a good idea to kind of look at the exiting uh, person in power. The very kind of famous and maybe infamous infamous uh, Merkel who's now leaving. Um, yeah, just on um, Merkel herself, who's leaving office after 16 years, um, what would you see, both of you say that her time in office would say about the state of German capitalism? Uh, recently, Wolfgang Streeck stated that Merkel's strength was actually being able to put off decisions and impair it as if she was on the side of every division. Uh, what would be your view of like the the sixteen years of Merkel? Yeah, well, Merkel is a good is a good topic. You could probably write a book about her. Um, if you if you'd ask uh, a, a typical German voter and ask him what's your what's what's the most important thing Merkel did, like. They would probably have no. They could probably don't couldn't tell you five things that she accomplished because her her governing style was basically management of the status quo, and I think that take of Strick was very very precise. Um, when I when I read um, the culture of narcissism by Christopher Lash, it really amazed me how uh, his definition of narcissism um, like. Uh, uh, 
being open to new ideas but but lacking a conviction that's just the best mm -hmm. the best summary of of Merkel politics you could ever give yeah, if you, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you think of even her, her migration policy, like in October 2010, she said multiculturalism has failed, utterly failed. Five years later, when during the refugee crisis, she was on, on television and made a refugee girl cry because uh, she told her that her family couldn't, couldn't stay in, in Germany and um, that uh, German authorities would have to, to, to close borders, essentially. Now, um, newspapers were very eager to, to depict Merkel as uh, the icy queen, asking if she even had any feelings at all. Is she, is she even human? Like, what a monster. But, um, <laughs> and there you can see her opportunism. Then, then she, she changed completely her, her whole uh, refugee policy to open borders. And the reasons for that, if you follow media and follow leftist media, is that uh, now, now she has a, a heart for, for migrants. Now she has a heart for refugees. And uh, we, we need to show a human face in case of emergency. But the, the truth is that there were material interests behind that. There were uh, years of a debate uh, uh, regarding a demographic change because German society is not reproducing itself well um, and how that would affect uh, the pension system and that you would probably need to reduce pension payments and stuff like that. Also, there was a need for capital, for more uh, cheap labor. And... Uh, Two years uh, after that, after that decision, there was also uh, the next election. And what Merkel did was uh, just what every opportunist would do. She, she opened the borders and, and uh, did what capital, her main, her main constituency, uh, basically told her to do. But you're not allowed to say that. You're, you're, you're not allowed to, to frame it like that. Mer Merkel is... A, is an opportunist. You can you can pin it down to so many to so many decisions to so many weird changes of mind. Uh, it's it's uh, really really a sign of of decay. It's it's pure management. Yeah, but I will, I would also say what I was always most intrigued by is the support uh, Merkel receives or received in the U.S. and the U.K. left. I never really understood that. She was really popular. And I mean, she's not, she's really not a left wing politician. And um, it's always this image of girl power. It's always this, oh, look, <laughs> we have the EU and there's this woman in charge. And of course, she was the first a woman chancellor in the history of <laughs> Germany, but come on. And it's, it's this girl boss thing going on in the, in the, in the left. And like Guardian writing about who would never say anything. Uh, they could never criticize her for, for, for the life of them. They couldn't. But I always called her the car sales, saleswoman in the back of my mind because the only thing she obviously cares about uh, is to protect the valorization interests of German national capital. And, of course, she uses the EU and especially the strategic partnership with France as her tool. You know, so I never really understood this appeal she had for progressives, except this extremely vulgar juxtaposition of 
the U.S. imperialism is bad and German imperialism is good. I mean, this this can't be it. I remember I was at a conference in in Milan, and there was this um, this UK uh, economist. It was a conference on, on on Marx, and I thought, you know, as a Marxist, I would be in good company with other Marxists. <laughs> and that the topic was was also German uh, German politics and and Merkel. And then I said something about that car saleswoman, and everybody looked at me. Which car saleswoman? I said Merkel, of course. And they looked as, at me as though I had said something as as though I had said, said something out of reach, you know, like completely wild. And they all rushed to protect Angela Merkel. <laughs> I'm like, what is that, right? Uh, why do you? So, what is this appeal she has in the U.S. and U.K. left? I never really understood. You know, unless there's this vulgar conceptualization of of good German capital against bad. U.S. finance capital, or something like that. That that's literally mm. the the appeal. Um, <laughs> I think that it's really not more complicated than that. I'm afraid. Um, we've had like people running around here in the in the British left press for years, stating that the German um, model of economy is something to be aspired towards. Um, uh, your favorite Elena, Mr. Owen Jones, was on record okay. as saying how great <laughs> it was and that uh, um, Corbyn should be inspired by the German model. He was apparently unaware of stuff like, um, what was it called, Hearts 4 and all the stuff that Schroeder did to erode it. Um, mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. But because literally like Germany has a slightly more, uh, slightly higher level of industrial base um, the German unions seem to be in a better condition than ours are. That's enough for them to be impressed by it. You throw in the fact that Merkel's a woman, and well, they they literally um, lie down in front of her and worship any German yeah. chancellor on the basis of this very shallow interpretation. And it is, as you say, they they think the British left think that the, the historical process belongs to American imperialism. And therefore, mm. anything which isn't that, mm-hmm. be it oh, yeah, 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 German sure. imperialism, Chinese imperialism, or <laughs> Russian, is great. And it's <laughs> this is the shallow, pathetic state that we're in at the moment. So it is as simple as you say. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe part of the reason, too, that Merkel appeals so much to everyone is because of the... Um, the view of the German system of industrial relations in the West, like so certainly a lot of admiration for the system in Canada and the United States and the, the left here and the British left um, frequently state that the German system of industrial relations where, you know, have workers as representatives of companies on boards and also the welfare state is a model for everyone to follow. Um, but that's just the marketing. What is the reality of the system in Germany for the working classes? Yeah, um, uh, seems like like the British left is, hasn't done its math. <laughs> well, um, I think I think one way to put it uh, is is to to look both at France and at Germany, and when you look at like labor union. At, in in France, you you always see uh, like burning barricades in, in the media and stuff like that. And whereas when you look at in, in Germany, um, you you never see those those heavy pictures. You never see uh, mm-hmm. 
you never see uh, conflicts like that arising. And the reason for that is that uh, labor unions in, in Germany are well, way better integrated into uh, yeah. the system of industrial relations. And wow. um, that system has only one purpose, and that purpose is to ease tensions between capital and labor. Um, it's, it's basically uh, to there to prevent um class war by mm -hmm. by better management and it's it's a means of domesticating labor and if you listen to to um people that are very very disillusioned by um labor unions and works councils and stuff like that they 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 will say that they they will say to you uh, those are those are just co-managers i already have a boss i don't need them like they're part of the establishment they're greedy um, like they, they always, uh, they tend to tell you these old stories of, of, uh, works councils members, uh, getting flights to Brazil and, uh, getting prostitutes and stuff like that. And, um, the reason why, um, there is so little confrontation between capital and labor is that there doesn't need to be much confrontation well why should why should uh, capital do that the labor unions are already on board with everything they they say and do they they like the eu they have no problem with that yeah yeah i i think uh, i agree and uh, british american left are quite misinformed about the, the situation of of the working class in germany so don't forget to mention that the biggest labor market reform of the 20th century the Agenda 2010, which was notably initiated by the Social Democrats and the Greens, is still applied. And among them, among these these uh, labor market reforms, was is the infamous Hartz IV system or Hartz IV system, where Social Security and unemployment benefits have been collapsed into one, which drives down social benefits to an absolute minimal standard. You know, I've I don't know, Michael, if you've lived, ever lived off that system, but I have for a year and a half after I graduated from university. And I could, I mean, I was, I couldn't afford anything. I, I was, I, I mean, I wasn't starving when I was close to it, right? It's, it's just management of, of, of poverty. And it's a conscious creation of a precariat consisting of unemployed segments of the working class and also the PNC. What is what was but why was it installed in the first place? So its aim was to finance German the German export market, the German export market surplus, and drive down the prices in the domestic market, especially the labor market, in order to be to have a pole position in competition in the European market. And all the crisis that you can find with Greece, with Italy, with Spain, is a result of the employment of this biggest labor uh, market reform, the agenda 20, 2010, because it is impossible for, for the, for the, for the Greeks to, to compete with these low prices. And within the EU, I think the German, um, German means of subsistence, uh, have, have the lowest prices in the whole of the EU. And with this, the launch of this uh, labor market reform, um, that was also the beginning of the end of the defeat. Uh, uh, well, it was the beginning of the defeat of the working class because that system, which financed German capital and German export export surplus, uh, made it impossible. Also, uh, you know, it should have made uh, a difference. It should have put people, you know, 
people were on the streets, I remember. Uh, but it was eventually, it was just quenched. You know, these people have just been sitting it out and there has never been a, a strong resistance to that. Also partly because it was seen as an objective constraint on the German economy in a highly competitive situation. Yeah, I think it's it's also important to point out that um, membership in labor unions is just declining for years now, just as the number of works councils. Like uh, <laughs> there are no means for revolution or something. It's, it's uh, ridiculous. They, they can be some sort of help, but I mean, uh, they haven't done anything in that period you just mentioned, Elena. And also um, a, a big part of labor unions um, benefit from the uh, EU and the German uh, export regime because um, their their members are are uh, working in a car industry and um, they have interest in remaining good uh, relations with capital and staying in the EU and subjugating the rest of the continent. And I think yeah. um, that's a disgrace. Well, you can see capitalism is, is, a, is a system of, of uh, market competition, right? And you can see just how uh, in Germany, how it's, it's really, it's like a script played out and uh, with the German, German policy, which is all focused on, on this one aspect to be competitive and to have this, to, to secure the export, uh, export surpluses on the market. Just on the uh, what you were saying there, both of you about the um, realities of the realities of um, the situation in Germany for the working class, um, has there been much reflection within the uh, wider German left of um, Merkel's pivot to allow between eight hundred thousand and a million Syrian refugees in? I mean, to my mind, this was. A transparent maneuver to uh, put downward pressure on the wages of the German working class, but it doesn't seem mm -hmm. that that's been reflected at all in how this has been perceived on the German left, even in its more supposedly radical sectors. Could you say something about that? I think um, um, you you are not allowed to to really talk about refugee policies. Uh, other than on moralistic terms, um, it's that there was a time there are a few figures who who uh, at least try to hint at the fact that letting a few hundred thousand people in might have some material impacts on on the weakest in society, uh, but that pattern of thought isn't really uh, popular among the left because the left in Germany now mainly consists of uh, people in the middle classes and uh, people in, from academia. Um, I, th there, were, there were attempts uh, by people like Wolfgang Streeck or like uh, Sarah Wagenknecht or Oscar Lafontaine. Um, I think we are going to talk about uh, some of them a bit more. But they were all marginalized. And... Um, the, the topic was completely left uh, to the far right. There were a lot of union members, a lot of uh, former uh, social democrats uh, who, who tried to 
to uh, talk about um, the effect of uh, migration for uh, the weakest of society and how how it will affect their their chances on the labor market. Um, but they were they were marginalized. Uh, a lot of them now went to the agriculture. Um, moves us on rather neatly towards the uh, question regarding the the SPD, which is um, one of the oldest um, uh, social democratic parties, one of the original founders of the uh, the old Second International, and yet it's been in a pretty relentless state of decline since losing power in two thousand and five. Although it has been in some coalitions with Mer- grand coalitions with Merkel, um, so are they basically on the road to extinction now? And is there a broader lesson there regarding social democratic politics in Europe in general? Yeah, so I think um, social democratic parties in Europe are in the last death throes. In Germany, um, they have crumbled from a stable 30 to 40 percent in the general elections in the 80s and 90s to 20 percent in the 2010s and are down now to a pathetic 14 percent in the latest polls. So I think, yeah, we have to speak of a pazokification of social democracy also in Germany. But I would be lying if I said that I felt sorry for them. Um, the SPD, I mean, more than any other party, they have become a total farce. I mean, you can play this out uh, only for so long until the people realize they have been taken to the cleaners, really. So like the Greens, the program has become a kind of technocratic managerialism. It's anti-union, it's anti-worker, and it's pro-EU. I mean, just look like a figure um look at a figure like Martin Scholz or Sigmar Gabriel or Olaf Scholz, the current chancellor candidate of the Social Democrats. They make absolutely no mystery about their defense of the interests of capital. So uh, Gabriel stands for the protection of monopoly capital interests. Scholz, the chancellor candidate, is the main guy for finance capital. And Martin Scholz was a stooge for making sure that the EU would always act in the interests of Germany. So you rather have to wonder why the SPD should get as much as 14%, right? Now, what is interesting is that um, there's a, there's been a rise of populist parties throughout Europe in the last 10 years or so, uh, what some friends of mine call anti-politics. So in Italy, you have the, the Movimento Cinque Stelle, and in Spain, you have Podemos, in, in France, you have Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National. In, in, in the Netherlands, you have Gerd Wilder's party. And the UK voted for Brexit. The US had Trump. But none of that uh, was happening in Germany, right? Germany has no anti-political movement or moment at all. It's, it's very EU conformist. As with the Greens, I, I would say, you rather have a world to power um, that's in, cordon- it's in accordance with the establishment. And um, so the interesting thing, what's happening, what could be happening, I'm not really sure if, I've, if I put a, um, yeah, if I would issue a, a thesis like that, but I think what could be happening is that the Greens, they could install themselves as uh, a better um, managerial force than the social democrats in, in Germany. And they will replace the self-dems, I think, because the Greens will 
jump in their place because the sock dams have completely made themselves redundant. Yeah, I think um, like when you uh, when you chop off the head of a chicken, like it's it's not it's it's still moving. It runs around and uh, it needs some time for the chicken to to really die. And I think that's what we're witnessing for years now with uh, the German SPD. It's 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 horrible looking at them. Even when they they try to do it right, they're just failing miserably like in the last couple of years there were attempts of like some sort of utilization of woke ideology like um frank walter steinmeier our, our uh, pre president um urged everyone in the in the um aftermath of george floyd's death uh, to be an anti-racist and just to keep in mind that that guy is the mental architect of the Agenda 2010, and uh, just like the the newest cadres, like um, like uh, the the young hopeful uh, Kevin Kuna, they're they're just recycling old social democratic bullshit with woke ideology and try to sell. Uh, the the nationalization of a car industry to the German voter as some sort of step towards socialism. Social justice. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's. Just... They are they are worse in, at this at this uh, than the Greens. The Greens, they have a knack for for um, you know integrating neoliberal world politics into into their own uh, party line rather than the SPD. It comes a little bit comes across as a little bit alien to them. You know, it's like. Frank Walter Steinmeier, if you look at this guy, right, he looks like he's never <laughs> once smiled in his entire life, not even as a child. This is, <laughs> this is, this is something that, that, a, that a journalist that I like, a German journalist, has said. And um, these people, they look really, um, they look like the gray, the gray eminence of, of, I don't know, uh, maybe um, the bodyguards of the Pope or something like that. <laughs> really strange people and they don't come across as this young, dynamic, urban, middle-class uh, lefties like the Greens. And that's why the employment of woke ideology comes across this way. It's not really um, <laughs> very convincing. So it, it's a bit stiff. And <laughs> yeah, it's it's cringe to watch this happening and going down in, in real time yeah well okay so spd is definitely first as tragedy then as farce <laughs> <laughs> but um what about delinke which is i'm sorry if i mispronounced mispronounced that but it's german for the left so it's the uh -huh. the germans left party or new left party and it's presented as um offering more socialistic politics um can you can you uh Take us through um, Delenke and its um, rise, which has coincided with SPD's decline and where it originates from. And do you think it qualifies as the new working class party in Germany? Yeah, um, Delenke is like officially formed in 2007, but its origins, its roots are traced back uh, basically to the German Democratic Republic. Like uh, it's... Um, it's uh, the remaining bit of the uh, former uh, SED, the um, uh, uh, Socialist Party governing um, uh, 
the GDR. Socialist um, Unity Party. Yes. Socialist Unity Party, yeah. Um, uh, and in 2007, it, it fused together with uh, the remaining bits of real diehard social democrats, like uh, those poor subjects who actually really had... Uh, a social democratic outlook and actually a spine and um they uh, formed uh die linke which was uh headed by i think it was oscar lafantin who uh ran a very successful uh election campaign with the spd in, in 1998 and uh yeah th their outlook was back then really a bit more socialist like in the elections of uh, 2009 they were really really um successful uh, particularly among uh unemployed people but also among workers and ever since uh that changed like in 2009 um the leadership changed and uh with it also uh step by step the constituency so what you have right now is a party that can hardly be described as a working class party the working class um shifted towards the right and uh what's now the constituency of uh, die linke i would say is a more or less um on a federal level um the uh lower the lower um brackets of the middle classes of PMC. Uh, I would even say it's the children of a Green Party voters. <laughs> um, they don't make mm -hmm. a lot of money, but they certainly have an outlook uh, of making a lot of money in the future. But right now, they have some sort of feeling that capitalism might be bad. Um, mm -hmm. That will change. But um, yeah, whereas in, in Eastern Germany, it looks quite differently because um in a lot of states um um the linke has like a tradition because a lot of people grew up with uh that party and um uh, especially in Thuring and Sachsen-Anhalt it was regarded as almost like a mass party a Volkspartei but that also changed it changed dramatically they've lost a lot of voters uh to to the AFD uh the whole constituency of the linke changed from east to west and from uh the rural countryside uh, to the uh university towns and uh if you look at workers and uh, who they vote for in in the eastern states, like the AFD has almost like forty percent, and yeah. uh, the link is nowhere to be seen. Hmm. Hmm. I know we we're going to talk about her in a minute, but um, a lot of a, a fair share of the success of uh, the link in the last uh, election was just due to uh, Zara Wagenknecht, who has uh, who is very, very popular, particularly among Eastern voters, but also in the West. And um, without her, uh, it looks very grim for, for the Linke. So just mm. on um, Sarah Wagenknecht then, and 
maybe others who were associated with her. Um, how did it come to be that um, she was marginalized inside Die Linke? Because I remember um, when I was I was in Germany for a while in 2009, and she seemed to be like the, one of the preeminent leaders of the party. But in her recent mm-hmm. book, she basically says that the whole thing's been colonized by the, mm-hmm. the German middle class. So mm-hmm. what um, has she got any remaining support within the party? And also, can you talk a little bit about like how did it come to be that her and um, others of her uh, strand of thinking were for, forced into a, a more marginal position? Yeah, well, um, she, so Sarah Wagenknecht, um, she's a contested figure. Uh, in the mainstream left, um, she's being depicted as sowing division among the working class for hallucinating a lifestyle middle class left, which, um, according to these morally impeccable lifestyle leftists themselves, does not even exist. So I've actually just read uh, an article in, in Concrete, which used to be a great journal, a monthly journal, uh, left-wing, radical left-wing journal, which is turned into the same lifestyle left-wing journal that you find everywhere. And and this, they make this really wild claim that something like a, like a middle-class urban uh, professional class of, of lifestyle leftists does not even exist, right? And if you don't mind, I would like to tell you of a recent occurrence, um, which is not directly linked to Sarah Wagenknecht, but which I think nicely illustrates the levels of insanity that are going on in this lifestyle left in Germany. So if you don't mind, go ahead. <laughs> um, a, little, a little anecdote. So during the lockdown, there emerged little TV clips by the German government that contained these propagandistic, you know, these calls for exhortations to hold out during the COVID lockdown, basically um, stay at home, save lives with soft lights and um, handsome couples having a cozy day in bed or something like that. So, but a couple of months ago, there was a brilliant in my view, initiative by some 50 German TV actors. Um, they may be comparable to, I don't know, in the UK, Ricky Gervais or Christopher Eccleston, that sort of, of TV actors. And they parodied this these government propaganda clips and made a different set of TV clips that they put on YouTube. So they presented themselves in little testimonials and mocked the whole lockdown argument by even radicalizing these perseverance slogans and saying things like, we should never trust any experts who don't agree with the official experts. Or they were saying things like, my child has become so thin and exhausted, but I think it's great she gets in touch with her darker side. <laughs> you know, something like, it's almost like the comedy of, of this con- Canadian comedian I really like, Ryan Long, um, which I also think is quite hilarious. So some of these clips were really chilling because it was presented as testimonials. So these actors got on these clips and said their real names. They said, I'm an actor. And I think, you know, lockdowns are great because uh, <laughs> we all have to die anyway, right? So... <laughs> But of course, um, after this was launched, this campaign was launched, uh, it was privately financed. There was a huge, a a huge shitstorm in the media. So I have not seen, I think in my lifetime, levels of fury and spite 
that this little stunt ignited. It was really unprecedented. So guess what? What happened was that the actors were called, of course, fascists because uh, right-wingers and conspiracy theorists were allegedly applauding them and they were allegedly mocking the hard work of care workers, etc. So nobody really got the joke. But no one, not a single person in the media during this shitstorm, thought about what it actually was this initiative was saying. You know, namely that society was shut down and children were suffering because of closed schools, etc. They were all uh, completely, this criticism was completely ratified. And um, it was really no longer, uh, it, it, so the aspect of uh, a medical emergency that was really no longer justifiable um, completely fell fell out of the picture. And all of this um, was a self-serving shitstorm of precisely the middle class lifestyle uh, left that had been morally blackmailed, exactly as Sarah Wagenknecht has said. So this parody had been taken down from YouTube, and even some actors um, show, were showing repentance and were invited back to talk shows where they could give testimony to their moral blackmail. So quite to the contrary, this lifestyle left that, that, that Zara Wagenknecht talks about in her book, and correctly I think, it is the biggest discursive force in German society. And of course they represent the mainstream media. And it's interesting to me how um, the very same people who represent this, this middle class lifestyle left that Sarah Wagenknecht talks about could deny their own existence. So uh, what you really have um, is something like uh, uh, the influence of, of Sarah Wagenknecht, certainly for certain parts of, of the left who are not completely brainwashed yet, and that's, that's a very small part. But the majority is, is completely disinterested in having um, um, constructive uh, uh, exchange of ideas with her. And, and, you know, because I think she would be open to that kind of dialogue. Sarah Wagenknecht would be. But... Um, these people are screened down, they're shut down, they're canceled, they're excluded from, from public discourse. And uh, this is what I said before when I talked about the narrowing down uh, of discourse to this fascism blackmail. That's the only discursive horizon we find right now at the moment. So Sarah Wagenknecht is basically, um, she's a persona non grata for, for, for the German establishment because of this reason. Because she points to exactly what's going on in German politics right now. I think it's also important um, that to point out that Sarah Wagenknecht is by no means, by no means, uh, a revolutionary figure. Like everything she says or does is basically um, old school social democracy, and she says that she she is not uh, making uh, a secret out of that. She says. Uh, what a lot of people uh, think, namely that um, social democrats have betrayed the German working class and uh, that one needs to go uh, back to uh, things that have worked, among other things, a uh, sovereign nation state, uh, one that is uh, in any way capable of regulating labor markets and so on. And you can think about that what you will but it's very, very popular. It's very, very popular because there is a, there is a completely justified uh, feeling among uh, German workers that uh, they've been uh, cheated on, that they that they don't no longer matter, and 
if you if you could <laughs> if you could speak or understand German and you would listen to one of her speeches, it's very very basic and there's no there's no um, uh, stressorism involved at all. She's like very it's very basic. It's very down to the facts. Not even very emotional when she talks and she explicitly. Uh, uh, referencing uh, people like Bernie Sanders. Uh, of course, um, no one cares for that because it's not about uh, not about politics. It's about um, leaving uh, the uh, pushing the working class out of the left. And I think, as particularly in in regard to the nation state and to the EU and to uh, refugee policy. It really shows that uh, the left is um, is nothing more than really a moral laundry for capital interests, and uh, that most of those people that are now in the link are now voting for them. They will, in, I mean, give them ten years, and they will be green. They will be in the Green Party, and they will, will they will advocate for. A labor reforms or war or whatever there there's there's uh there's really no need to 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 uh talk about the working class and in, in die linke because it's it's rarely existing and uh the attacks on sarah wagenknecht are a real testimony to that hmm well um, so we're talking about the working class, you know, not being interested in Delinke. Uh, Elena mentioned that um, there is no anti-politics in Germany. I mean, something I even have heard about um, in my very European politics depleted um, news cycle is, of course, alternative for George Lenn, so the A AFD, um, and about how this is actually the right-wing fascist party that has emerged mm -hmm. in Germany. But, Elena, I'm hearing that you don't really think that's the case. So um, w mm. what are your thoughts on the FD? Like, are, are you think, do yeah. you think this is just another case of leftists using the specter of fascism to boost its own support? Well, yes and no. Um, let me let me tell you just a little bit, just a, just a little context. So in the history of post-war Germany, neo-Nazi parties have been coming and going, really. So you had in the, you had the NPD, the National Democratic Party, which is the outright Nazi party, the, quite successful in the 1960s. Then you had the Republicana, interestingly, the Republicans in the 1980s. And then you had the German People's Union, the DVU in the 19s, in the 90s. And well, now you have the AFD. And um, they evolved mostly from the Pegida movement. I'll translate this for you. It's called uh, Pegida is, is an acronym for patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the Occident. And no, this is not a 19th century movement. And they were quite active, especially in Eastern Germany and Austria around 2014 to 16. So the AfD built on anti-immigration and racist stereotypes, but I don't think that this explains their relatively mild success and standing because you have the same anti-immigration and, and racism in the Bavarian Christian Social Democrats and frankly also in the SPD at times. Mm. So I think part of their allure comes from their anti-establishment uh, yeah, anti and anti-EU politics. But they never managed to become successful the way, say, the Movimento Cinque Stelle was in Italy. 
this is I think this is of course it's due to their uh, open links to 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 prominent uh, partly prominent neo Nazis, which of course is a no go for most voters, especially in the West. But at the end of the day, I don't really see such a surge in polling numbers. Well, there aren't, there isn't really a surge in polling numbers. I think they're likely to be down from 12% in the last election, 2017, to maybe 8 or 9% in the current election. So I'm rather hesitant to talk about a real fascist threat posed by the AFD. But on the other hand, um, for the established parties, it is much easier to find support for their own neoliberal policies if you can hallucinate a real threat. So if you if you turn on on your your German TV set and, and you have uh, um, German German public um, stations on on the radio, it's it's as though the AfD was the biggest party in Germany. It's really like they're ubiquitous. But they're not, you know. So there is a big um, a, a tendency to to blow this whole thing up, and in no way related to the real, um, to to reality and to the facts. So I think that maybe they have the time right now because um, established party parties are so, yeah, redundant, except the Greens, <laughs> as I mentioned before, uh, with their own self-serving moralism. But they will maybe stay on for another couple of years, but I don't think um, they will um, get to power anywhere, any anytime soon. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that there uh, is a rift within the AFD. Like you've got, it was born as an anti-EU party and um, it was led by this uh, weird economist and always had like very bourgeois attitudes and politics and that changed uh, with the migration crisis with the refugee crisis and uh, now they're like there's a stream in uh, the AFD which is very I don't know fascistic in in its uh, outlook like they try to talk about things like solidarity and social policy and like make make the welfare state patriotic again, and we'll have to 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 see how that works out. But the the um, reason why they're so popular, uh, particularly among uh, Eastern Germans, is just because um, it is the anti-green party. It is uh, basically the middle finger to German politics. And because it's an utterly divided country, like uh, they are most, they are strongest in, in Eastern Germany, and uh, their their whole strength basically derives from the fact that there is no alternative to the alternative for Deutschland. <laughs> well, um, this is a familiar story for me because it's uh, the exact same story when it came to the support for the UK independence party um mm. which is that they mm -hmm. they started off as this very bourgeois sort of uh, split from the conservatives in the early 90s and then they took root in a lot of very poor deindustrialized areas in the part of England that I'm from the north the north and mm. northwest and as mm -hmm. they grew in popularity every year um, the uh, the bourgeois media got 
ever more hysterical about them, uh, declaring that basically um, it was the the rebirth of um, Oswald Mosley, who was the, uh, mm-hmm. the fascist mm-hmm. leader here in the 30s, and that um, Nigel Farage was going to institute some sort of hideous rebirth of like the British Empire from the 1880s. Um, whereas in reality, Farage was basically like um, a sort of British version of a US libertarian. Um, UKIP was a very contradictory force that fell apart under the weight of it being a very bourgeois leadership and a, a, a very, very working class voting base. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. To, to, to hear, same here. Yeah. To yeah hear, same with the AFC. So to yeah. the, the reaction, though, because I was in like. Um, a leadership position in a, in a trade union council in Manchester at the time, the reaction from the, the left was like, um, man the barricades, this is like uh, Franco coming to besiege Madrid all mm-hmm. over again. <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to the point mm-hmm. where like they were de- the, the left parties were like demanding money from the trade unions to hold mass counter demonstrations against like um, U- UKIP actually uh, campaigning in elections which mm. was a complete overreaction, um, but just symbolic of like the fact that the, uh, the left in Britain has completely lost its mind along with um, it, its orientation towards the working class. Um, mm. But to, as, uh, to follow on from the question of like party politics to look more at like the working class movement, if you can use that term in Germany, like the... The, the perception here, again, we're talking about the delusions of the British left, is that the German working class did not suffer the same levels of defeats that we did, uh, particularly like the dramatic defeats of the 1980s and early 90s that saw like British trade union numbers halved from like 13 million to six and a half million. So there is a, this idea that the German working class, regardless of it, whatever setbacks it has had, is still in a stronger position um with compared to other nations in Europe um we've already discussed this a little bit but can you talk about like what the reality is is there any sort of um working class breakout from the what sound like to be very bureaucratic um and non-democratic structures of the unions there yeah um i guess if if uh the defeat of uh the working class in britain was more uh, spectacular it was very very silent in germany it was uh, mm-hmm. silent and crawling and it's uh, a sad peak was the agenda 2010 uh, uh there was just i think uh last year there was this um documentary which which went viral and became a meme in, in german internet um which was a documentary from 2007 uh, regarding a discounter in in uh, Hamburg's uh, red light district, and it just showed uh, like the daily business of alcoholics and how how the staff is is managing the discounter. And there was one scene where um, a customer went to the cashier and yelled at her, and uh, I don't know what what uh, he said, but an interview after that. Like she, she began crying and, and said she, uh, he, he called her fat or something. And then the cameraman uh, asked her, yeah, so what are you going to do about it? And she said, well, you, you just got to take what you can, can take nowadays. You, you don't have a choice. And that's 
that's of the defeat of the German work, working class. The Agenda 2010 installed a huge Europe's biggest uh, low-wage sector, sector yeah. in, in, in Germany. And uh, like a lot of people just uh, gave up. Like you can, you can um, see by uh, the number of unemployed people in the city uh, how many of them are going to go uh, vote in the next election. Like so many people have uh, given up. And uh, for me personally, it was a real, uh, it is telling that none of the uh, trade unions uh, during the Corona uh, situation uh, went out and defended um the right to demonstrate of the so-called uh, COVID deniers, like these trade unions, uh, don't care what their what their members uh, if their members have a right to to demonstrate to 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 say their opinion publicly. It's it's uh, very saddening. None of the the major labor unions stepped up and said anything in regard to the infringement mm. of liberties. And mm. I think that's very telling. Yeah. So I would say it's, it's a big delusion to, it's delusional of, of, of the British left, or maybe <laughs> the Brits in general, to think of the German working class as, as being in a stronger position. I would agree to Michael. It's, it's been going on silently for years. Um, just on a personal note, I haven't been living in Germany for um, 12 years now. And um, I'm from Hamburg. And um, so what, what Michael just talked about this little episode in Hamburg uh, in the red light district, that sounds very familiar to me. But I'm coming back now to, to Germany um, to, to see my friends and my family in my hometown. And I'm from this, this area, uh, St. Pauli, the red light district, like, poorer, traditionally more working class, uh, you know, former even uh, sailors, you know, the Hamburg Harbor is, is located in that area. And I really have to say, um, what's going on is, is strong precarization more than anything else. The levels of poverty are have really been going up. And I'm seeing this successively when I come back there because, you know, when I'm living, when I used to live there, I didn't realize it myself, although I was pretty poor when I lived there too. And um, I'm really coming back and I talk to my friends, I talk to my my, uh, my former colleagues and they say they really don't know how to survive anymore. And they are people um, who have been, okay, and, and, you know, in retail jobs or something like that. But what's going on is a real... Um, there is no, uh, there's almost no hope. You feel like if if there is a if there's a strong cut, a strong slashing of the working class movement as it has been in Britain, then at, at least you know where to begin. I mean, it's never been done really, but there's is a clean cut. But in Germany, it's a slow decay, and I think that's even worse uh if you're in that situation and you want to organize you want to do something because these people need a moment to wake up to right so when the agenda 2010 was established and there were these demonstrations i think there were a million people on the streets at the beginning of the 2000s um and that didn't help then people become disillusioned right so so and it's that and it's the, this 
nihilism and the defeatism that that that's 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 been so pervasive now with the poorer parts of the population and there is no such thing as a working class consciousness in, in germany like even when in the 80s when i was in england for a school exchange i was in newcastle and that was really uh, a very interesting experience to me because i talked to these people and i was beginning to get interested in politics at the time you know i was pretty young and they said yeah you know we're working class people we're working class and i've never heard anybody self-designate as, as working class in my life before mm. you know and so forget about working class consciousness in germany that's that's i don't know when when there was something like a working class spirit last in the, in the history of of, of 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 germany i i don't remember not my lifetime at least well, you're certainly painting a different picture of Germany than a lot of people have in mind. Um, I mean, we, to do the next question. Um, so the image of Germany is uh, of a of a vibrant industrial capital of or state in Europe, uh, one that is the strongest there and just creating good quality, you know, just like the U.S. used to be in the 50s and 60s, like a manufacturing superpower. Um, but it seems, looking at the actual economic data, that it has been in a state of low growth since 2012 and was already dipping towards a recession in 2018. And of course, now it is in a recession, as are most countries. Um, so what do you think is the real state of German capitalism today? Um, is it facing much of the same issues as the US and Britain in terms of a large amount of fictitious capital and increasingly... Um, unmanageable, unmanageable um, asset bubbles, or do you think there is some truth to um, the idea that it is uh, the, the strongest in Europe and and, uh, and and one of the strongest states in the world? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, um, uh, due to uh, the um, central bank policies, um, I, I guess there are a lot of a lot of bubbles, um, especially uh, in the in regard to um, uh, property prices and stuff like that. I find I find it a bit hard because I find it a bit hard um, giving an answer because um, Germany is often painted as um, over-industrialized, uh, which is only due to um, the terms of trade given uh, by the euro. Um, I think that will change. I think um, there are going to be a lot of layoffs in the near future in the car industry. Um, there were uh, polls uh, saying that a lot of union members serving in the car industry uh, are afraid for their jobs. And I think um, there are going to be... Um, their their voting behavior will gonna be uh, interesting. I think, uh, nevertheless, capital will um will uh yeah change that and and will will uh go further to the green side. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there has been this lamentation in in by by uh, figureheads of of the German economy, also the the WEF. That uh, Germany is a digitalization latecomer, and 
that is the narrative that we hear today because uh, that's the reason for low growth since 2012. And that was because uh, Merkel, um, I mean, she's been 16 years in power and um, oh my God, this almost sounds like we were eight years in power. And, and she, she has really concentrated on the real economy in her time. So that was her main thing, the, the car saleswoman, as I said before. So digitalization uh, of the market and, and of production especially is very is indeed very slow you know so you don't have uh the, the kids in german schools they don't use computers it, it's it's the exception that they should use computers and um so because it's been been focusing focusing so much on the real economy and the export economy especially export economy of german technology german cars you know this traditional um, industrial output. Um, these the problem with uh, large amounts of fictitious capital in the system does not pose itself so much to as a problem to the German to the German economy as it does in the U.S. and Britain. I think it's rather this this being late in this this new technology um, digitalization. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember Merkel calling the internet um, uncharted territory a couple of years ago, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> which uh, is, a, is a testimony to, uh, yeah, the affinity of Germans towards technology. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think, um, well, there, there is a lot of talk about asset bubbles and uh, um, prices uh, of um uh, properties, uh, real estate. Uh, you have mm. like a um, you have these pretty uh, petty bourgeois movements, uh, which like in in Berlin we have this movement uh, Deutsche Wohnen and and Co. and Eigen, which basically wants to um, to nationalize uh, real estate companies in in Berlin because and uh, that's a big issue in Berlin, yeah. Yeah, the Berlin. Um, it's a it's a Berlin thing. Like me being from Hamburg, we we you know Hamburgers we don't like the Berliners and maybe vice versa. But this is something I really we never understood about the Berliners this petty bourgeois uh, uh, infatuation almost with the real estate market <laughs> so yeah but you have like signs like of of what you might call pmc socialism where you want to to make uh living more affordable in 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 the cities but yeah just show show the middle finger to afd voters on the countryside where you have like mm -hmm. now there is this new tesla factory uh being built in uh, right at the yeah. gates of, of Berlin, and I think uh, that's gonna be uh, th that is gonna be an outlook like e mobility and electronic cars and that shit. And uh, a lot of a lot of people are gonna be um, uh, feel like they are left behind because uh, a lot of lot of workers don't want to go and re-educate themselves in order to work at tesla for i don't know uh, barely a minimum wage or something like that um. well elon musk is reported to have come to berlin and say he's gonna pay every worker <laughs> i don't know something like 50 euros an hour like crazy wages will he be but paying them in bitcoin 
(laughs) (laughs) It turns out it was a hoax, surprisingly. Yeah. Well, uh, I wonder how that's going. Yeah. yeah, well, he might be playing them in Bitcoin or Doge. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> seems to be his favorite method of doing business these days. Um, I mean, the the problems you described there, um, a lot of them are uh, also present here in that, like this, the there is a maniacal belief inside the British ruling class that if, if they just get more people um, with faster broadband connections then we will somehow uh, solve our contradictions. Whereas, like, all they've really done for really 13 years here is just reinflate the property bubble. That's it. That's the Mm -hmm. sole achievement Mm -hmm. of, like, the Cameron, May, and Johnson administrations has been to recreate the system almost exactly as it was before 2007, Um, Mm -hmm. which isn't a surprise because... Um, although there is a working class consciousness of a type here, um, it hasn't really manifested in politics. I think, uh, Elena, I said to you last time we were speaking, uh, mm-hmm. that the whole Corbyn thing was a gigantic mm-hmm. uh, petty bourgeois and sort of upper working class project, um, which yeah. really animated a bunch of public sector managers and not very much else. And mm-hmm. so all his ideas were exactly like petty bourgeois socialism. So like we're going to f- f- forgive student debt, etc. Yeah, but this broadband thing, as far as I remember, wasn't that a labor talking? Yeah, point? it was theirs. There was it was like Corbyn was talking about we're going to get everybody on free broadband. So yeah, um, and then like Johnson has taken it up, but like everything else, yeah, okay. um, because uh, Brit- the British state and British capitalism is so horrendously inefficient, it won't happen Mm. because Mm. the capacity is just not there for these gigantic transformational projects that they all keep talking about. But then when it it comes down to in reality is they'll build like a new railway extension and Mm. but the system is so corrupt as well that they end up spending billions over budget on not very much. So mm. it sounds like we've got some similar problems. I think we're just slightly further along down yeah, yeah. the line towards like digital delusions than you are. Well, you know what? You know what Mark said in the in the preface to the first volume, to the second uh, edition of the first volume of Capital. You know that what he said about England is showing the other countries the future of their oh, own. Oh yeah, we we decayed you know, first and fastest. <laughs> Yeah, an image of their own future is the correct. Yeah, uh, um, I think. Well, we started um, deindustrializing in about the 1890s, so uh, everybody's got to catch up with us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lenin observed that the southeast of England had been turned into a a rich man's playground as early as like 1913. And they, they keep trying to do it with the rest of the country, but like they keep. This is one of the reasons why, like, the sort of uh, petty bourgeois socialists around Corbyn were so angry is that, like, the British working class stubbornly refuses to be gentrified. And that's, mm-hmm. th- th- therefore, you've got to call them all racists and try and shame them into submission. But that's interesting. How do you, why do you think the, the German working class can be uh, blackmailed into, into this, uh, this gentrification and so on? Um, woke ideology and, and the British working class can't. I think, it's, I think, you think? what you said about the fact that the, 
the defeat of our working class movement in the 80s was so violent Mm. and spectacular and based on Mm. an enormous amount of state repression that Mm. it even with like years of conservative rule and years of Blairite labor, um, the changes have never been, I would say, fully legitimated in a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds. So like yeah. the working class um, is st- still in a state of like it, even those who are completely depoliticized know that they, they know that there was this huge battle that was lost. Whereas yeah. I think to again draw on what you and Michael were saying, the um, losing slowly over a period of what forty years mm-hmm. is probably worse because mm-hmm. yeah. um, they they what, what they, the British ruling class had to go uh, to extraordinary lengths to pull off what they did, and mm. I think it sounds like the German ruling class just used more sort of. Um, patient methods to achieve the same results Hmm. yeah it could be yeah i think it's it's just like better managed to be honest Uh, that there wasn't much of confrontation because there was no need to like uh labor unions were there when capital needed them yeah Hmm. well and and also in this country like the, the the unions in the 60s and the 70s were a lot more contested territory, so that the the rank yeah. and file workers were a lot more confident in basically telling the the union leaders to fuck off quite a lot of the time. Yeah. So one of the um, one of the big battles in the 70, late seventies and early eighties was the the union leaders going along with the ruling class desperately wanting the the worker militants to be crushed. So that their yeah. their control could be reasserted, and that the the reassertion of control by the union leaders was actually part of Thatcher's project, because they'd yeah. lost control completely before like the early eighties. So I think mm-hmm. in that sense, like our unions were probably a little bit more developed than yours back then, because the worker militancy was higher, um, yeah. and the, and the no, control definitely. of the the leaders was less. And we didn't mm-hmm. have the same level of. Um, I think West Germany had that tripartite structure in place from like the Adenauer mm-hmm. period, didn't it? Um, yeah. So we didn't have that, and they they tried to bring that in in the seventies, and it didn't really work. Um, mm. So everything was in from like the forties to the seventies was done by like um, a show of force in the workplace. So. Um, the workers might not have had like a revolutionary party, but they had a very advanced, sort of militant, almost syndicalist consciousness that um, the ruling class had to work a long time to stamp out. And they did it mm-hmm. ultimately by stamping out the industries those people worked in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah, moving on to like our final point on this, which is the the question of like the German ruling class and the question of like the whether they they are a united class at the moment or whether there's any kind of split in them. So, like, um, to again, to draw on Streak's point from his article, like, Merkel seems to face, like, every direction possible when it comes to, like, international politics sometimes. Uh, German capitalism does have significant interests in Russia, but also, like, the, the German ruling class were keen to participate in the whole Maidan thing in Ukraine. Um, so it seems like, 
often like the German ruling class is in a bit of a contradictory position. Um, also, like the relationship between like um, the relationship they have with China as well, also puts a bit of tension in relations to the U.S. So, can you talk a bit about the divisions in the German ruling class and like uh, whether they reflect politically and uh, what that's going to mean going forward? Yeah, I think um, the baseline for German politics is um, what Merkel said. Um, if if the uh, euro fails, Europe fails. Uh, there's uh, like German capital won't ever uh, accept Germany without the EU because it's so vital to their uh, interests. So everything Merkel said and did was always uh, aimed at maintaining uh, some sort of stability uh, for the union, uh, whether she achieved that or not. <laughs> Obviously, uh, that's up to debate. Um, yeah, regarding uh, divisions between uh, different factions of the bourgeoisie, I, mean, I said it earlier. Like the Greens are are uh, basically the American Embassy. Uh, Robert Habeck, like one of the party leaders, just recently announced that it would be a very good idea actually to uh, supply Ukraine with German weapons, and. Um, that would be fantastic, and it would be also like that. There, we we have the responsibility to do so because uh, I don't know uh, German German past, and there was a lot of pushback against that. Like that is not, to be honest, a very popular idea. <laughs> one can one can uh, yeah imagine why, um, but. Uh, a big part of the German bourgeoisie is nevertheless very happy for Biden to uh, be back because uh, they don't need to cozy up with uh, the French. Uh, they, I, I just checked uh, whether any uh, German party has anything to say about the prospect of a European army and um, the, the Greens don't want that. Um, the Conservatives uh, do maybe in, in a couple of years, but that that remains up to debate. And um, I, I'd say the biggest faction of the bourgeoisie is just very happy uh, for Biden to be back. And they have this sort of balance act between um, the uh, US imperialism and some sort of... Um, balanced notion towards Russia because German, um, the German bourgeoisie also wants Nord Stream 2 to be completed. Maybe I'm pushing this too far, but I think, uh, I really think that the Greens, if they're going to be elected and if Annalena Baerbock is going to be chancellor, I think they will be going to war with either China or Russia, but my bet is Russia. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think so, because they have been preparing for this mm, for wow. so long ideologically. Mm. And I mean, it's just just a crazy guess. But, you know, I think we live in the time to have big crazy guesses uh, if you see how pol politics is evolving. And uh, I think it's, it's, there's such a level of lunacy, as, as I tried to explain before, uh, especially in, uh, with the Greens, and they come across as this innocuous, you know, 
uh, party, former peace party, you know, feminist, environmentalist. And by the way, Annalena Baerbock, she is playing according to the Hillary playbook, totally. Now we're going to see if that works out better for her than it did for Hillary. But um, she is the same kind of carrierist type of person. And I think she wants to go to war with Russia. I, I can't imagine that she would have many other plans alongside that. Uh, it, it's this whole rhetoric. I just don't think it will really work out because um, I think this is a risky step to take. But uh, the whole rhetoric of, of, of the Greens is, is uh, focused on that. I mean, um, if, you know, weapons delivery is to Ukraine and saying that, you know, basically the Greens are the American embassy in Germany and so on. So um, China, there's, they have also been very hostile to China. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not, I think Russia is more, is more focused, you know, and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of heat and, and, and discussions. And now it's, this is happening with the Nord Stream 2 project. I don't know, Michael, if you want to say one or two things about the recent developments in that. Yeah, it's basically just a pipeline um, um, bringing ration uh, oil to, uh, to uh, Europe and to Germany in particular by avoiding a route through, uh, I think, Eastern Europe and Ukraine because of the tensions there and mm -hmm. uh, because of the um, perfectly uh, managed um, change in uh, Germans' uh, energy policies. Um, uh, some people uh, uh, hold the uh, weird belief that it's not always sunny in Germany and it's not always windy in northern Germany and therefore we might be um, uh, dependent on other uh, energies and um, that's like that. that's that's uh, the debate they're having, and the uh, Greens are basically more in favor of uh, buying um, oil from the uh, U.S., which is, uh, as I heard, more expensive, but uh, a little price to pay for uh, keeping Europe safe. Mm. Mm. Uh, so Fossil fuels. <laughs> Fossil fuels for, for Germany. That's, that's a green project. <laughs> It's a green dollar project. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's, I, I, you know, I kind of wish we could do a show just on um, German imperialism, but we've already gone for over an hour and a half. So um, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much to both of you. I, I don't have anything else to say or else we're just going to go on and on. But um, Alex, do you have anything else to finish off with? Or uh, No, I think we've, we've covered all our points there. So uh, thanks to Michael and thanks to Elena for coming on. It's been a really interesting discussion. I'm sure the uh, listeners will be getting a lot of detail that, uh, strangely enough, is never covered in the uh, the Anglo-American bourgeois press. It's funny that all all from the all from the British left, who we've discovered in the course of this conversation, know even less than we thought they did. <laughs> thanks so much to you guys for having us. Oh, yeah, no, it's our pleasure.